Pastor Mike. Well, good morning. My name is Tad Skinner, as uh, Mike shared, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed up through uh, fifth grade for the Gospel Project. There's some volunteers out on the patio uh, for you, and they'll take you over to the preschool building or the children's building, respectively. Uh, obviously, they're welcome to stay in here, parents, as well. So, glad to be uh, able to, to be with you this morning and be preaching God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're in the book of Mark still, Mark chapter 3. It's on page 489 of the Blue Bibles that you'll find under the seat in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one of those. It's on page 489, Mark chapter 3. But before we get into this passage, I want to talk to you first about stress, about pressure. Does anybody feel stressed today? If I were to say, what about in the past week, I would imagine that everybody would say that they feel stressed. But we, we are a people intent on minimizing stress, are we not? Uh, just a couple of examples of that. Uh, Southwest Airlines has a, an ad campaign called, anybody know it? Want to get away. And what are you trying to get away from? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> trying to get away from stress. Or Snickers has uh, their slogan, you're not you when you're when you're hungry. And so just having a Snickers will rid you of your anger, your stress, your anxiety, whatever is ailing you in this world today. Uh, Disney, Disneyland is, is based on the, the premise that uh, it, it's the happiest place on earth. And if you just go there, all of your stress will melt away. Now that's, that's debatable, <laughs> especially if you have kids, it's certainly debatable. The advertisers say, do you need to relax? Well, just go, go have a smoke, go get a beer, and all of your stress will, will melt away. Even Ford has a vehicle called the Escape. Yeah, so <laughs> it seems that we're constantly trying to get away from the stress and pressure and anxiety of the real world. So today we're going to look at a passage that shows us the very real pressure that Jesus experienced, and we'll see that, that probably one of the greatest stresses that he experienced was people. Does that sound familiar? Perhaps that's a stress that you feel as well. Perhaps it's your kids or your co-workers, uh, your roommates, and don't nudge the person next to you. Perhaps it's your fellow church member that is the pressure point for you. Or perhaps it's strangers on the other end of the phone or the, the blurry faces that race past you in traffic every morning. Regardless, I think we'll find it a bit comforting to see that Jesus experienced the same types of pressures and stresses that we feel. But that didn't keep him from seeing the need for people and seeing the, the true purpose and value of people as well. So today we'll see in our passage from Mark the pressure of people, the need for people, and the purpose of people. The pressure, the need, and the purpose. And we'll find that we're created, we were created for uh, fellowship with God and to do his good work. So first, the pressure of people, reading Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. We read, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus withdrew. And if we remember the previous uh, Ten weeks, this is now the tenth week that we've been in Mark. If you remember the previous chapters, he withdrew from all of the stress and strain and pressure and persecution that he was facing. 
uh, in particular from the religious leaders. And so that meant that as he was withdrawing from them, he was also withdrawing from the people that he was ministering to. Now, is that surprising to think about that, that Jesus would withdraw from people? I guess it is a bit surprising, I suppose. We, we don't think of Jesus as one who would retreat from people, and perhaps we're even encouraged that Jesus would withdraw from the people, right? You, you ever wanted to escape from, from people, from the people in your life? Well, for a very, very different reason, Jesus needed a way of escape as well. All right, let's see the real reason that Jesus withdrew. So uh, if you remember, again, the previous passages that we've been in, Uh, The religious leaders were so angry with Jesus. And why were they angry with him? Well, they're realizing that they're not the only game in town. It's as though you own a Taco Bell and then a Chipotle opens up a street next to you. You'd be pretty angry because Chipotle is vastly superior to Taco (laughs) Bell, right? Everybody would agree with that? And so the religious leaders... They were gathering evidence. Remember that they had at least, uh, uh, Jesus had at least five strikes against him. He was accused of blasphemy when he forgave the sins of a paralytic man. Uh, he, was, he chose a tax collector to be one of his disciples. He ate with sinners and outcasts. He plucked grain on the Sabbath, and he healed on the Sabbath. And that final one was the tipping point. We saw just in the, in the verse previous to this, in verse 6, Mark 3, 6 says that the Pharisees and the Herodians were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. So it's been headed to this point for a while, but now the the Pharisees and the cultural ruling class are actively looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, Jesus is no dummy. He felt the rising uh, pressure. He felt the rising tension. He felt the stress not only of, of the threat on his life, but also of the people who wanted a piece of him, and so he left Capernaum. That's because Jesus lived with a purpose. He always had his eyes on the cross. So knowing that he was headed there, uh, Jesus said about his life in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus wasn't going to be bullied by the Herodians or the Pharisees or anybody else. He had things to do before his appointment with the cross, and so it was not yet his time to die. And so he withdrew to be away uh, from the religious leaders. Jesus is always in charge of his life. So we withdrew to the countryside. So that did provide relief from the pressure of the religious elites, but it didn't provide uh, relief from the pressure of people. We see that they're coming from all over. So just a a quick geography lesson. Tyre and Sidon were 50 miles to the north, and Idumea was about 120 miles to the south. So this was at a time when it was was not at all easy to travel long distances. So these were people from predominantly Jewish regions, people from cities that were predominantly Gentile in nature, and, and people from just mixed Gentile and Jewish regions. So people from all over were flocking to him. So remember that, if you remember back in, uh, uh, earlier in Mark or in the, the earlier parts of the other Gospels, people flocked from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to, to see uh, John the Baptist. But Jesus was a, a true rock star with crossover appeal. People from all over were coming to him. People from varied back, uh, backgrounds as well. You, you know the Great Commission. 
that is in, at the end of Matthew and the, the version that is in Acts 1.8 says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here, the very regions that are referred to in the Great Commission are coming to Jesus. Today, we're being sent out to those regions, but back then, they were coming to see Jesus. Jesus was that exceptional. Jesus was like the, the Tom Hanks of his day. Uh, he, he's a crossover star, right? Everybody loves Tom Hanks, don't they? I, I, we got any Tom Hanks haters out here? I tried, I struggled to think of who, who would be the, the Jesus of today. And I, maybe Tom Hanks, I don't know. Everybody loves Tom Hanks. Is that sacrilegious? Sorry. Jesus was unique, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus was unique for his day and time. I, I, you, you try to do it. You try to think of somebody that everybody likes. Uh, it, it's tough to do. Anyway, the point is, everybody loved him. Everybody loved Jesus, everybody except for the Jewish uh, religious leaders. So imagine, imagine that you've been living with an illness or a disorder for some time, and so you've traveled that distance, that 50 or 100 miles, and the primary and in most cases only reason that you've traveled that distance is because you need healing. You're desperate. And so once you get there to see Jesus, you're not going to be denied. You've not given up that amount of time. You've not uh, crossed that rough and difficult desert terrain just to be turned away. And so you're pressing in and you're falling all over Jesus, just trying to get his attention. So with that in mind, imagine the building pressure that we see on Jesus as we continue reading verses 8 through 12. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So again, the sick were pressing in, on Jesus. The demons were calling him out by name, either to put him on the defensive uh, or to reveal him. And the Pharisees were likely waiting in the shadows, waiting for him to trip up, waiting for their opportunity to destroy him. So you can imagine the immense pressure on Jesus in this moment. Now, I mentioned earlier that we see the crowd of people in verses 8 through 10 who had traveled far and wide pressing on Jesus. And the word there in verse 10 is actually closer to to crushing. So the implication was that it was a group of people who were advancing on Jesus, who were falling on him. It's like a crowd trying to get to the stage to mob uh, whoever the latest rock star is. They just want to get closer to that person. So picture this. If you can picture this in your mind's eye, it's like a movie scene. Jesus is trying to withdraw, but he can't because this crowd of people is, is pressing in on him. And I think if we could see this scene now, we would be brought to tears. So don't miss this. While the Pharisees are seeking to destroy him, his broken creation is doing anything they can to be near him. And don't miss this too. There's an acknowledgement of danger here as Jesus actually asks for a getaway boat 
in verse 9. That's actually pretty cool when you think about it. It's almost like an action movie. He asked for a getaway boat. So you can imagine the scene as one of the disciples steals away to position a, a boat close enough that if, if the crowd becomes too unruly, they can just shove Jesus in the boat and he can be whisked away to safety. It's pretty crazy. So let's stop and let's apply this section. There's a couple of ap applications here for us before we move on to the, the last half of our, pas our passage. The first thing is to recognize that if you're doing ministry, and all of us, all of us as believers in Christ are doing ministry, if we're doing ministry, you will feel the pressure of people. So if you're in a gospel community, one of our small groups, uh, very likely at some point you're going to be asked to provide a meal for somebody or to sit with them and care for them as they're struggling through a need. Now those things often don't happen at a time that is most convenient for us. We'd rather be doing something else or we have other things that we need to do. But the priority of people should most of the time take precedence. And that's a good thing. That's when we have the opportunity to exhibit the character of Christ, to show that our identity is in Christ. When we set aside our own needs to care for another person, we are exhibiting the character of Christ. We're showing him uh, to the people around us. And the second application is this, merely recognizing the greatness of God is not enough. Recognizing who God is is not enough. I, I heard somebody joke once that uh, if you just recognize that God is great, or if you just recognize that God is real, then congratulations, that qualifies you to be a demon. <laughs> because even the demons believed in Jesus. So it's not enough just to believe and see Jesus as great. We must also submit to his authority. So here we see that the crowds of people gathered because they recognized the greatness of God. They recognized how great he truly is. But these same people who today came from miles and miles to follow Jesus are, are very possibly going to be the ones who are rejecting him just a few months from now, possibly even some of the ones that are chanting for his crucifixion when he's about to be put on the cross. Now, we don't like to think this, but believers in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, are we that fickle? Are we seeking after God for the things that he would give us? Do we see God just as great, but not as somebody who, who we must obey? The crowd was asking Jesus for good things. They were asking for healing. Do we ask God for good things without accepting his authority in our lives, without submitting ourselves to him? Now, we could probably spend a lot of time throwing out examples of this, so uh, I would encourage you to, maybe God will, will uh, give you some examples from your own life, but just a couple of examples that uh, we don't have time to unpack all of these, but do we ask for rest? Rest is a good thing. We heard about it last week from, from Josh. Rest is a good thing. Do we ask for rest all while working too many hours just for material things that are going to pass away? Or do we ask for rest, and instead, we spend hours and hours staring at a screen on our phone? One more. Do we ask for a boyfriend or a girlfriend, even as we look at images on a screen that warp our view of all the good things that God has created? 
I'd imagine that all of us in this room today see the greatness of God and are drawn to Him. That's one of the reasons that you're here. But do we not, including myself here, do we not ask God for good things all while not submitting completely to His authority? Now, we all have blind spots with topics like this. And so I would encourage you to, to reach out to somebody, ask somebody, what are my blind spots? Where am I seeing just the greatness of God, but I'm not submitting to his authority? In what way am I doing that? Give somebody permission to speak into your life in that way. And if you're not a believer in Christ, might this be how you're living as well? Maybe you agree with many of the things that Jesus says, all the good things about uh, unity and community and fellowship and love. So you can enjoy that aspect of Christianity. But are you seeing the greatness of God while ignoring that someone that great, who is our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, has a call on our life, has authority in our life as well? There's nothing better than what Jesus has to offer. We have our sin and our mistakes, our broken finances, our broken relationships, our broken bodies, and he offers heaven for the there and then and peace and rest for the here and now. So we've seen the pressure of people, and now let's, let's look at verse 13, and we'll just very briefly see that even though there's pressure of people, we still need people. So verse 13, and we read, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So we know already that we need people. I mean, that's, that's obvious. Uh, we, we all know that. We don't necessarily need to see it here in this passage, but it's there again. We, we actually already saw it in verse 7 and in verse 9 as well. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciples. So Jesus could have gone off by himself. And here in verse 13, we see that Jesus withdrew from the people again. He went up a mountain. But he didn't do that alone. He called those whom he desired. So one quick application from this. We do need people, but we need to rightly value and love the people that are around us. So if the road that we need to be on is rightly valuing and rightly loving people, then there's a ditch on either side of that road. On the one side is the ditch of overvaluing people. So looking to them for our identity or our value or our worth or our purpose. And the ditch on the other side is undervaluing people seeing people as, as only some, someone to be used or as less important than the tasks, the things that we have to do each day. Now, we have a whole connection class on this subject coming up uh, next spring, so about a year from now, where we unpack all of that and talk about that. So I'd encourage you to, to go to that in about a year or explore that uh, in the meantime. But the most important thing to remember is that God has created us to live in community with others, and we do need people. We just need to rightly value and love the people that he puts into our lives. We need to take care in prioritizing people, to love them as they need to be loved by showing others the love of Christ and pointing them to God in our words and our actions. So not overvaluing and not undervaluing the people 
that God has put into our lives. So just as Jesus desired to involve people in his life, we need people in ours as well. So we've seen the pressure of people, and then we've seen the need for people. And now we're going to take a look at the purpose of people, specifically the purpose of his people, the purpose of a disciple of Christ. So finishing our passage with verses 13 and 19, or 13 through 19, and it reads, and he went up, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So in our remaining 20 minutes or so, we'll see a a seminal moment in the life of Jesus and really in the life of, of, of the church, even extending until today. We'll see that we as believers in Christ, as his disciples, that we have a great purpose. We are created for fellowship with God, and we're created to do His good works. So look again with me at verse 14. It says, um, well, we see immediately there are two purposes, two purposes for the disciple of Christ. The first is to be with Jesus, and the second is to be sent out by Jesus. So to be with Jesus and to be sent out by Jesus. And I believe that the order of these is important. That's because being a disciple of Christ is a relationship before it's a task. It's a relationship before it's a task. It's being with and knowing Christ before it's being given something to do. Now, that's, that's really difficult, I think, for us in a, in a task-oriented culture. But it's really important that we not miss that relationship first and then a task. So we're going to look at at these one by one. First, let's see that we must be with Jesus. And then let's consider that, that, uh, or how, rather, we, we are to be with Jesus. So these disciples were able to walk with Jesus for three years. So how is it that we are to be with Jesus? So the first, just three quick ways. The first is through prayer. Now, it's, it's easy to get, get swallowed up by the needs of people, whether it's family or, or work or, or otherwise. Uh, people needs, they often consume us. But prayer is communion with God, communion with our, our Creator and our Father. It's oh so important for dealing with the pressure of our daily lives. So prayer is one way that we are with Jesus. The second is through time in the Word. Now, uh, Let's not make this about guilt. I don't want you to feel, feel guilty. Any of these things, uh, I think, can be made to, to make somebody feel guilty. I don't know how to say this uh, without you feeling guilty, though, but reading the Bible is the very Word of God, the very God of the universe speaking to us. So is anything more valuable or more important than that? So I'd encourage you to have a plan and have accountability in reading the Bible. There are uh, 
dozens or probably thousands of ways to plan out reading the Bible. We have just one that we're highlighting. It's on the back a table at the back. It's a three-year Bible reading plan. You can pick up a little brochure that, that walks you through how to do that. Uh, but the, the important thing is to have a plan to read the Bible and then to have accountability. If you have accountability, you're going to be a whole lot better off uh, in reading through the Bible on a regular basis. So prayer, reading the Bible, and the third way that we walk with Jesus is through fellowship with others. So as, as I said earlier, Jesus isn't physically present. He's not physically present with us in this room right now. Uh, turn to the person next to you and say, you're not Jesus. <laughs> Easier to say with some people than it is with others, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. All right. But we know that before Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus said that we that we, his believers, would do greater works than he. That we would do greater works than Jesus. So turn to the person next to you and say, you will do greater works than Jesus. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible when you think about that. Part of what that means is that each of us as believers has the opportunity to be a disciple who makes disciples. It's what our disciple makers classes on Wednesday nights or our our connection classes on Sunday mornings are about equipping us to be able to, to rightly understand and handle God's words so that not just for our benefit, but so that we can also share it with the people around us. So that's just a couple of examples of how to be with Jesus. Now this, this passage then, uh, these, these 12 that Jesus calls are called disciples. He calls them disciples. Why is that? Well, a disciple is a student it's one who learns from a master. Specifically, a disciple learns in active interaction with a master. Uh, much of what, what you might think of in the same way as, as an apprentice. So when I, when I say that word, I know that, that a lot of your minds are drawn to Star Wars. You think of, of Jedi and their apprentices and that kind of thing. But, but it's not just that. It's also, think of an electrician's apprentice or a plumber's apprentice. Perhaps you've, you've heard of that before as well. So what, is that, what do they do? What, is a, what does a plumber's apprentice or an electrician's apprentice do? Well, it's someone who tags along with the master, who gets to see firsthand how to solve this problem or how to interact with that situation. That's the role, then, of a disciple. So religious disciples were common back in the time of Jesus. But what was really uncommon was, was here, Jesus is the one that calls his disciples. And that was really unheard of. The, the normal practice was of a disciple attaching himself to a rabbi, that the disciple is the one that chose who they were going to be next to. But here, it's Jesus who does the choosing. And that really reverses the equation, I think. That the question really isn't what the disciple can learn from Jesus or from the rabbi. The question instead becomes, what will Jesus make out of his disciples? What will he make out of the disciples? Do you see the difference? It's much like a potter who's standing in front of the clay or a sculptor who's standing in front of a block of granite. What will Jesus make of his disciples? So to, to further underscore this, the Greek uh, can be also be translated here saying that Jesus didn't appoint the disciples, but that he made the disciples. Jesus is the one who chooses, 
Jesus is the one who makes us into something useful. It's very Christ-centered rather than than human-centered, isn't it? So how might our lives be different if we would accept that truth and, and live our lives in light of that? That Jesus makes the man or that Jesus makes the woman. So let's just go a little bit deeper into this. What makes you? Is it Jesus or is it something else? What's your identity and your faith and your hope placed in? Now, it's so easy to put our our faith or our trust or our hope or our identity in other people or to have our identity be determined mostly by fear and anxiety or determined by our job or what our major is or our personal finances or our possessions or by exhaustion, by the myriad of tasks that we have to do each day. And so our identity is placed in that. But a disciple of Christ is made by Jesus, and our identity is wrapped up in him. He's the pinnacle. He's the one who determines everything about us. So second, notice about these men that that these were men with no particular talents, uh, no particular training, at least nothing that would stand out or distinguish them from anyone else. Uh, The point being is that we don't need seminary training. You don't need a certain pedigree. What you need is the hands-on training of seeing Christ modeled well, and that's something that anybody can take part in. Again, no formal training for these guys, but but beyond that, they're, they're just ordinary, normal folks. There's not anyone among them that was associated with a religious elite, nobody that that had connections. Nothing special about them at all. And what we have here is is a really uniquely diverse group. So look at it. We have someone associated with the Zealots. Now, that was an extremist political party who wanted to kick Rome out of Israel. They hated everything that Rome represented. They hated everyone who was associated with Rome. They wanted to take Israel back by force. And guess what? Another of the disciples called by Jesus was a representative of Rome, a tax collector, someone who worked for Rome. So putting Simon the Zealot and Matthew together would be like cats and dogs signing a peace treaty, or like Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi becoming best friends. Now, that, you may think that's hyperbole. I don't think that's far off. Only the gospel can unite people so different and so diverse. In this list, too, we have hotheads. The the Sons of Thunder were named likely because of their short fuses. Another way to translate that is the loud ones. So how how would you like to be known forever for your temper? So we've got hotheads, and then we also have boneheads represented as well. Simon... Simon Peter quickly got a reputation for, for speaking first, and then sometime further down the road, he got around to thinking. And then finally, we have a whole host of people that we really never hear from again. Bartholomew, Thaddeus, James, Simon the Zealot. Now, we know quite a lot about Peter and John, of course, but we don't know what these others offered for the cause of Christ. Yet we can be certain that the early church was built on the backs of these hardly famous early Christians. 
Now, is that encouraging to you? I hope that is. The work of Christ is often done without fanfare, without great acclaim. Now, of course, there are the Pauls and the Peters of the world, but is not the church mainly about and mainly constituted by ordinary Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do His work? Very likely, Bartholomew and Thaddeus and James and Simon the Zealot were people just like you and me, disciples who made disciples. So be encouraged as you follow Christ and make disciples. You may not get a spotlight, but God knows. He's our audience of one day, and and one day we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then finally, as we continue considering the first purpose of people to to be with is the first purpose of a disciple. Finally, consider that Judas is in this list. And Judas is on every list of the disciples that are written in the Bible, both here and in in the other Gospels. So how tempting must it have been uh, for, for Mark and for the other Gospel writers to leave Judas off the list? But we don't serve a God of deceit. This, this is real life, and this is exactly as it happened. So there's certainly a lesson here for us. If you, if you, serve, lo, uh, if you serve the Lord long enough, then you will be hurt. So everyone turn to your neighbor and say, you're a Judas. I'm, I'm kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that one. The point is that Jesus chose Judas. Jesus invested in Judas. And Judas gave no indication up until the time of his betrayal that he was not really, truly, a disciple of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who hurts or disappoints or betrays you is a Judas. Now, far from that. My point is that even the people that we love will sometimes disappoint us, and sometimes massively so. But we love anyway, knowing that Jesus has experienced the same types of hurts that we experience. Now, let's uh, not gloss over this. How, how do we deal with these types of betrayals and disappointments? Now, I'm assuming all of us in this room have been hurt by another believer in Christ. So what do we do when we invest and we give and we spend time or, or maybe even money And yet, what we get in return is apathy or betrayal or dismissal. Well, a large part of dealing with disappointments is in recognizing who we're grounded in. The more we spend time with Jesus and see him as the determiner of our lives, as the one who gives us our value and our worth, our identity, then the better we're able to withstand the storms of life, including the storm of having somebody that you've invested in disappoint us or fail us in some way. So there's so many lessons from being with Jesus. It's so essential that we spend time with God in prayer and Bible reading, in uh, uh, one-to-one discipling relationships, in corporate worship settings like this where we're fed and we're, we're filled up so that we can then go out into the world. That's the first purpose of being a disciple, is to be with Jesus. 
Now, the second purpose that we see highlighted is that disciples are sent out. So take a, take a look again, verses 14 and 15, and we read, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So being sent out here is divided into preaching and having authority to cast out demons. So let's not get too caught up in the, the casting out demons uh, portion of this. this. That was certainly a, a great reality in the time of Christ. A lot of demonic activity as the Messiah came from heaven to earth. There's still, of course, demonic activity today. Uh, we just don't see it perhaps in the same manner or, or as overtly as what is described here in the Gospels. So in our context today, it's probably helpful to think or more helpful to think of verse 14 and 15 as referring to proclaiming and acting or speaking and doing. So the disciples are to be about the business of God in both word and action, both in what we say and in what we do. Now, it's so easy to mess that up, isn't it? To get off script in what we, we say that we should do or what we're, we're going to say and do. So to forget the one who we are with and just go off and do our own thing, it's very easy to do that. But there's a, there's a link between being with and being sent. Those happen in that order for a reason, as I said. You're with and then you're sent. So being with Jesus means that we're not sent out to act autonomously. We're not sent out to do as we please. So think of it perhaps like this. Being with is the fuel that we need to be sent out. And when we're sent out, we're tethered back to the one that we're with. That tether is prayer and scripture reading and, and fellow believers that we gather with. So when we're sent out to proclaim the gospel to our friends or to our, our classmates or our neighbors, and we're sent out to do good works, we're not simply acting out how we feel at the moment. We're not doing things on our own. Just as a, a quick example, if you're an electrician's apprentice, you've been spending time with and you've been learning from the master electrician, been learning how to do things, and eventually you're sent out on your own. And so what would happen if, if you get to your first electrical problem and you just decide, I'm just going to feel my way through this? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to rely on what I, I learned from the master electrician. I'm just going to try to, you know, just perceive and, and feel my way through this, this electrical problem. What would happen if you did that? Anybody ever tried that before? It's not good for you, and it's not good for whoever it is that you're working with. Instead, how should the electrician's apprentice act? Well, the electrician's apprentice does his or her work based on what he or she learned from the master electrician. And if there's a problem uh, when they're out in the field, if there's a question, they, they have an in with the master electrician. They just pick up the phone and call, and they can get an answer, they can get help of some kind or another. The apprentice does only what the master has told him or her to do. That's what it means to be with and to be sent. So the disciples spent time with Jesus, they learned from him, and then they were sent out to proclaim Jesus as Lord in both word and action. And we're to do the same. So we spend time with God through prayer, through reading his word, through informal time with other believers, through time each Sunday uh, in corporate worship. 
sitting under the Word of God. And then we're sent out to proclaim the Word of God with our coworkers, with our friends in the classroom or, or the residence hall, with our family. It's so easy to fall short in this for any number of reasons. I think one of the main reasons that we fall short in this is we forget sometimes who we are. We feel we're not able to be sent, that we're not special enough. Remember, though, that no matter how you feel, disciple of Christ, Christian, follower of God, you are desired. Look at verse 13. It says that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. Jesus called you because he desires you. He desires you. That's life-changing if you focus on that and dwell on that and let that be your identity. Now, that, that may not feel true, but that is true. Instead, you may feel like one of the original disciples from a ragtag group of nobodies. They had nothing in common except that Jesus chose them, Jesus invested in them, and Jesus used them to change the world. So why not you? So fight the urge to feel inadequate. Fight the urge to compare ourselves to others and think that we're not enough, that we're not talented enough or smart enough or personality enough or enough enough. God said that his power is perfected in our weakness. The disciples weren't sent to proclaim their strength or their greatness. They were sent to proclaim God's strength and God's greatness in salvation. So God isn't looking for powerful or for talented or for special people who will offer up their strength. God doesn't need your strength. God doesn't need anybody else's strength. Rather, what, what God is looking for is trust. What he's looking for is someone who will be with him, someone who will spend time with him, who he can then shape and chisel and mature and grow into the person who can be sent out to proclaim his word. God is not measuring your usefulness by your talents. Rather, God has given you what he's given you in order that you might rely on his strength and go in his power to glorify his name. I think 2 Corinthians 9, 8 sums this up well. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. So disciple of Christ who is here today, be joyful for you are chosen and you are desired by God. And as true disciples, we must devote ourselves to spending time with Jesus, with God, and then being sent out. For we were created for fellowship with God and to do his works. Let's bow our heads and pray. Take just a moment, if you would, and reflect on where you are placing your identity. Ask God to help you to put it in him and that you might then be with him so that you can be sent out under his power and his authority. So consider that and pray that for just a moment.
Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation and that you have chosen to use us to be your disciples. And God, even in a world where we are constantly feeling stressed, that people are yours and they are for our good so that we might minister them and encourage them and care for them. And God, we thank you that you have given us ways that we can be with you even today in this room right now. God, we pray that as we, as we seek to be your disciples, that we would spend time uh, considering how we might be with you more and then how we might continue as we're sent out into a world that desperately needs to hear, hear you. Uh, God, we pray that we would remain tethered to you, that we would not go off on our own and go off script, that we would do the things that, that would encourage um, and glorify and honor you. God, we thank you for the ways that you have already used us. We pray for uh, you to use us in even greater ways that we might reflect your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.